Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. Robert Jackson joins us today. He is the executive director of the Institute for Classical Education at Great Hearts America. Uh, he has served previously for a dozen years. He was professor of English and education at the King's College uh, in New York. So he's been involved in, in getting, getting high school teachers uh, into the classroom and having to teach a really good curriculum. So welcome, Robert. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me, Mark. The Institute for Classical Education. First of all, just give us your definition of classical education. You bet. Classical education is really focused on preparing the student to be both intellectually, morally, and aesthetically alive, right? We want a form of education that will help young people to understand that their life's pursuit is to obtain wisdom. We want them in that sense to become philosophers, right? To love wisdom. And what does the Institute do to help prosecute that mission? Yeah, yeah. We have, uh, as a result of our success at Great Hearts Academies, put forward this Institute as sort of a research and development arm of the work we've been up to for almost two decades now, almost two decades. And research and development here involves bringing higher education and specifically select scholars, along with master teachers from across the country, into contact with the K-12 practitioners, those teachers who are delivering the goods day in and day out, and helping them to better understand as adults and as teachers how to deliver this classical curriculum and pedagogy most effectively to K-12 students. That's what we're focused on. And it is a combination of research, scholarship, and then building a community that begins with Great Hearts, which is now close to 3,000 members, a part of our extended network of schools. And when, when you the, say 3,000 members, who are the members? What do you mean? Teachers? Yeah, I'm referring, I'm referring, yeah, I'm referring to the teachers and the staff and the school leaders and the support for now 35 schools in three metropolitan areas, Phoenix, San Antonio, Dallas, and Fort Worth in that metro area. So that's where we are presently, and uh, we are still growing. In fact, we have plans to be in three more states in the next five years. So, uh, Well, actually, I want to ask you about that, but one thing we've talked before, uh, you've been on the podcast a few years ago, we're yeah, talking about right. growth for, for Great Hearts. You, you said you've got a, a massive waiting list, people wanting to get into the Great Hearts schools. It's a charter network, right? 
That's that's correct. These are charter schools in both Arizona and Texas. And admissions are done by lottery. Or they are public schools. Public schools under the aegis of charter laws require, and and we willingly accept this requirement that we're going to invite any and all families right to have their students come to our schools. But it is selection by lottery. No, 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 no Robert. I I think what you do is. You select the best students and you tell all the other students in the lower 80% beat it. Is that right? It's not true. It's not true. That's a terrible, terrible, uh, serious, serious lie. Uh, we, we have been very, very fortunate uh, to find that families are so eager to bring their children to our schools. And they come from all walks of life. They come from all zip codes and demographic backgrounds and they are attracted to the quality and the culture of the schools that we, that we run. And you have a huge waiting list, correct? We do, we do. Nearly the size of our enrollment, which currently, currently we have nearly 23,000 students enrolled in those three metropolitan areas. Like I said, 35 schools, and we've just gone online. Uh, so we also have an offering for some of those families either who are at home, schooling at home, or potentially wish to simply augment or supplement their, their education, their children's education. So we're starting to enter that space. And in part, that was due to our, our experience with COVID. That was sort of the silver lining for us at Great Hearts. We ended up uh, having to bring uh, an online component, right, to our schools. And then we chose to, uh, to really capitalize on that and bring it to, uh, to more families that might not be in one of our local school uh, within, you know, within uh, uh, context or within, uh, you know, with the ability to get to one of our local schools, the online option is now available through Great Hearts in Arizona and Texas. I've actually cited uh, Great Hearts as evidence for people who were skeptical of whether a classical education, one that isn't uh, all, you know, hip and contemporary and relevant (laughs) uh, in their sense of things, that... No, you know, here we have a success with classical education and the people can't get enough of it. Obviously, the parents who get their kids in want to keep their kids in these schools. What, what is, what's the secret of your success? I have to say that there is, I think, intuited by these families, uh, a recognition that much of what passes for education today is just so ephemeral. It's so faddish. And, and that's, I know that's harsh. Those are harsh words. Uh, but I think for anyone who has spent time watching the trends and seeing the various uh, phases, the various uh, uh, emphases over the past two to three decades, you can tell that education is sort of constantly looking for that new, new thing that new level of interest. You remember it was, it was self-esteem, it was standards, uh, you know, uh, it was testing and measurements. Uh, obviously all of this is still in play on some level, but more recently, you know, we've had, we've had interest in how to, how to do things with technology. That is to say, put more screens in front of our students and make sure everyone has an iPad. Uh, these types of fads, I feel, are something that, again, families intuitively no, there's not, it's not there, the substance, right? The durability, it's not there. 
And I think they're drawn to the quality of the materials, right, that we use across the, from kindergarten to 12th grade. These are books that I think most anyone would recognize. These are works of art, of literature, of drama. These are approaches to mathematics or even to reading that folks are familiar with, right? They, they understand that seems workable and they're drawn to it, even if they don't know what, what classical uh, connotes, if they don't fully understand the tradition, that's not necessary for them to just walk into one of these schools, see the quality of the curriculum, and then to see, and this is crucial, the quality of the instruction, right? It has to match. Those instructors that we select really are devoted to their subject matter and really care about students and want to see them grow, grow holistically, right? Again, as I said, intellectually, morally, and aesthetically, yeah. Now, a common question for this classical education is what kind of diversity do you have at the school among, among the student, demographic diversity among the student population? Yeah. Well, as I said a moment ago, we do draw from all walks and from all zip codes and from all ethnicities. It's also something that we're being much more intentional about as we put forward new schools in new regions because we believe wholeheartedly that this form of education is superior and that it's intended to be delivered to everyone. So there's a very democratic impulse behind what we're doing. Uh, this form of education, it's often associated, classic, classical education is often associated with elite prep schools. And we know a few of those, right, from back east. Uh, but we're actually trying to bring that elite model to all of the students uh, in, in a given region. Wherever we're located, we're trying to democratize what was once uh, the province uh, of a very select group yeah. Yeah. Uh, of people. Yeah. You know, so, a lot of the sorry, great... To your question, we are diverse. We are diverse and diversifying, if you will, right, in terms of the eth ethnographic features uh, yeah. of our population. Yeah, I, I, I was at a graduation for one of your high schools in, in uh, mm -hmm. uh, Scottsdale, I think. Uh, a couple of years ago, it was, you know, all different kinds yeah. of kids and people sure. were very happy. Uh, I, I must say at the graduation as a large, very large high school. Let me ask you a biographical question. Did you get a classical yeah. education? Would you say when you were primary and secondary? I would, I got bits and pieces. Mine was not a full fledged classical experience. It started in a private school when I was very young um, and a religious school, in fact, where I think I got some of the rudiments. Uh, but then as my family relocated, I was in public schools and actually went to public universities throughout, uh, throughout all the way through grad school. And what I found is that my interest in great works, my interest in the history and philosophy of education was something that I had to search out uh, albeit uh, with, with, great, with great ardor, uh, essentially by, uh, by working, uh, you know, working the bookstores and the libraries and finding those volumes that would inform me. So even in graduate school, I had a couple of courses that really assisted me, but a lot of this was done uh, as, and I don't mean to give myself too much credit here, but in, in an autodidactic fashion, right? I had to pick it up and find it. It wasn't something that I received in my formative K-12 experience, uh, nor directly in my, in my undergraduate years. Now, classical education is going to necessarily involve a lot of Judeo-Christian material, uh, I, I presume. How do charter schools, which have to be 
you know, religious neutral, uh, certainly. Mm-hmm. Is, is there any tension bringing religion that you that you've run across bringing religion into the curriculum? What we're blessed to discover, if I may use a religious term, is that the classical tradition predates its its deep Christian influence uh, from late antiquity and obviously through the medieval period where Christendom really did have and place a stamp upon classical education as such, because of course it was born uh, among the, the ancient Greeks and Romans. Uh, this is a form of education that, I know you know this Mark, but for your listeners, this is a form of education that as it was developed, as it evolved and was primarily delivered to, again, the aristocracy of Rome under the influence of voices like Cicero or pedagogues like Quintilian, it was a form of education that was so exemplary that as Christians became more numerous, as they became more influential, they began to look to that model, the classical model, to prepare their young, even though they did not accept the gods of Rome, right? Even though they were concerned about potential pagan influence, but someone like Augustine, right? A student of rhetoric was very much classically educated and found his voice, his ability to articulate his, uh, his statements of, of doctrine and theology using the very tools that the classical education provided him before he ever named his faith uh, as Christian. So all of this to say, it's that antique origin story that provides us a chance to say this is prior to Christianity. And the religious elements that continue to influence it, especially through the medieval period and into the early modern period, only continue or elaborate upon a deeply humane and universal experience of what it means to be human. There's something there that Christianity could, as, as uh, the church fathers like to put it, uh, plunder the Egyptian. I'm sure you know the phrase. They could take from something in antiquity and say, if that serves our purposes, we understand it is, in fact, the value. Uh, all truth is God's truth, right, to, to cite Augustine. So uh, the religious, the religious uh, among our families hopefully can see that what we're trying to do by perpetuating a classical form should, in fact, provide their students with the skills of thought, the, the affection to love that which is beautiful, the ability to develop an aesthetic vision for the world, an intellectual and an aesthetic vision that will equip them as they give the faith to their students. But they, the families, are responsible for conveying the religious import, right, for their children. Whereas, go ahead. I I presume that this argument, which to me, fully persuasive uh, to to me, but to officials in Arizona or, or Texas, uh, when you back up that argument with the parental demand, that's pretty hard to resist. It has been our success. There's no question, right? And I think this is something that's coming to the fore all the more uh, today and in the last couple of years, uh, particularly under the influence of the, pa- the pandemic and some of the social foment, right? That parents are stepping up and saying, we want to know that we still retain the influence and the authority over our over our children's education. And I think, again, that demand you point to is part of what, what gives us uh, standing, right, in this charter public space that we right. operate in. 
Yeah, and, and I think, as we know, in the last, just in the last few months, parents have become a very powerful force in education. Politicians now realize we gotta, we gotta really pay attention to what the parents want, or, or we're gonna get punished. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Is that the attitude the in, is, in I, Arizona, I, Texas, too? Well, I, well I, it, it's there. There's no question it's there. And I, I mean, I think there is an accountability, right? A political accountability. But I have to say, and I just kind of want to continue the refrain that what we are perpetuating, what we're promoting with the classical form is something that should genuinely be universally recognizable. Again, humane, uh, liberal, as we talk about liberal education, uh, the liberal arts, right, as those have come down to us. These should be of value to anyone, regardless of religion, ethnicity, sex, et cetera, right? Those categories uh, should not in any way uh, constrain any of our students. It, this form of education is truly um, universal, right? In its applicability. In fact, I, I, I would just, I will add this real quickly. Uh, one, of the, uh, one of the speakers who's gonna be coming to our, our spring event uh, makes this case that classicism or a form of neoclassicism as he refers to it, uh, can be found across the globe. In other words, other civilizations, right? Think of China or India have produced forms of what might be referred to as a kind of a classical orientation towards the human. And, uh, and I think in that respect, again, we are in the Western tradition uh, promoting something that comes to us from Athens through Rome and Jerusalem and right down to the present day. But I think we should acknowledge this is a universal hunger or aspiration to be fully alive. As Aristotle said, right, to flourish, human hmm. flourishing. That's our objective. Let's pause for a moment to ask if you are looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning, all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy, all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. You mentioned the annual conference uh, coming yeah. up, to which you've kindly invited me. Thank you. What is the theme this year? It is, in fact, for the love of poesis. Poesis, and of course, that's the Greek term that we translate as making or creating. Subtitle of our of our uh, of our theme or our conference is teaching the fine arts, and that's what we're focused on. So, in classical schools like Great Hearts, all students will be throughout their career of 13 years involved in the making of music, right? In the making of drama, stagecraft in the production and making of poetry and certainly the recitation and memorization, which uh, you will speak to, as I recall, uh, in this, this coming event. And then, of course, the making of visual art and artifacts. So it's the making, it's in the poesis that we want to emphasize what we do in these classical schools to equip students to, in fact, be makers, to become makers of beautiful objects. Do, do you think the fine arts have been uh, a little overlooked? lost some ground in, in, in the public schools, maybe even in some of, the, some of the classical schools as well? I think so. I, I, my sense is that uh, it, it is often 
those those classes are often recognized or or depicted as electives or you know for those students who have that inclination right for our artsy students uh that if if push comes to shove if there are budget cutbacks if there are any constraints that a school is facing maybe the arts is where we can find some wiggle room right in terms of resources for the school uh classical schools great hearts academies find the fine arts to be central, like essential to the curriculum. They are not ancillary. They're not supplemental. It's not if you happen to be a kid who likes that stuff. No, in fact, as I said earlier, we're teaching them to love that which is beautiful. So they have to have experiences with the beauty of these respective arts. So it, it's just not, I think you're right to state that at least in my, you know, I'm thinking back over five decades now, and certainly during my schooling years, uh, the arts were for that crowd, you know, for that group of students. Uh, for classical schools, properly conceived, they are an essential and integral part of the overall curriculum that includes math and science and language and history and literature, all of it, right? But essential is the making, the fine arts. Uh, I, I don't know. I mean, Robert, the SAT and ACT don't have a fine arts section. I, I'm just not sure. I'm just not sure. So, uh, hey, math. Mu math is the music of the spheres. You get a BA in math, remember. So, so <laughs> we got to remember this about, about, about math and, and its, uh, its elegance, right? It's, its beauties. Um, so as my, my father was a, was a, was a math, math guy. You yeah. Used to talk yeah, yeah. About, about that, but no. uh, well, has there been too much focus on reading and math in, in very instrumental ways? You know, reading. You know, the NAEP exam in reading uh, in, in yeah. two thousand the two thousand nine framework, I think it was said. You know, from now on, all the passages on the reading test for the National Assessment of Educational Progress, that nation's report card, that seventy uh, percent of it was going to be informational as they as yeah, they call it. So things right. like a, a landlord-tenant agreement. And the other 30% yeah. would be literary, and literary would include things like biography and, and, and memoir. Uh, poetry was yeah. only, maybe, maybe 4 or 5% of, of the right. reading passages would have any verse uh, in them. So even, it, you know, the reading and math push in this whole accountability regime and, and college readiness it really took over so much in in the curriculum especially after no child left behind uh which right. which which punished schools if they didn't show some progress on math and reading forget the arts though mm. did, did you, you know, did you experience that, that? You're, you're too young to remember that happening no 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 i was i was uh teaching at the college level uh as no child left behind came into effect and we watched the repercussions. Uh, I taught a policy and ed policy course at that time. Uh, and, and sad to say, you know, with the best of intentions, and I think back to reading first, I know you were sitting in the, uh, working with the NEA at that time, so much that was intended, uh, you know, for, you know, beneficial policy that just backfired or otherwise turned into uh, really just the unintended consequences, right, of that whole regime of testing and measurement and standards uh, associated really uh, you know a, a debacle but i, I want to get back to the the, the focus that i think the, the heart of your question there is aren't these things really just supplemental aren't they 
you know, accoutrement, aren't they? Like, uh, like the gingerbread house, you know, they, they, they kind of decorate uh, on the fringe, as it were. It's just not true. Mark, and you, you, you implied as much as you spoke to the nature of language and the testing that moves towards information, uh, moves towards the mere transmission of some kind of exchange of, of idea or information. Uh, you know well, as a former English professor, that the layeredness of language, connotations and denotations, allusions, the very thing that our, our friend Edie Hirsch has spoken to for decades now, right? To have some cultural awareness, because the reference within the language, right, within a particular sentence, are lost to many who do not have a larger, not just a vocabulary, but a repertoire right, of the great works of our civilization. They can't know that there's an allusion or a hint to Milton or Dante or Virgil if they haven't had any acquaintance with those works. But that's, even that is sort of superficial because I think that the reason we study the literature, and specifically, let me move to the fine arts, the reason we pay attention, right, and I mean attention, when we begin to sketch, when our students begin to draw, when they begin to observe the shading and the line and the form of an object as they draw or reconstruct a still life, when they render a still life, is so that we can teach their eye and their mind to focus. And I'm talking about the, you know, in the medieval sense, right, the eye that really is the soul peering out and trying to make or construct understanding of reality. I think the fine arts, in particular, drawing and painting, no question that music, which in the liberal arts has always been connected to mathematics. You mentioned the music of the spheres. There's no question that by learning and by making music, one becomes much more aware. Our students become much more aware of meter and rhythm of sound and the structures that are in fact mathematically demonstrable. There's a way in which their minds are being tuned, right? To the reality that's there auditorially, right? It's there that comes through that, that mode that we don't pay attention to if all we have is the sort of blaring soundtrack of, uh, of the local pop station or, you know, whatever you've got coming over your iPod uh, or your phone. So I think what we're trying to do with the fine arts is remind them that there is a world, a wide world out there that they are being introduced to. And again, specifically through the arts, they understand that it would be so reductionist, so limited, so very constraining if all they could do is deal with informational text and then punch out algorithms, right? Punch out algorithms, just here's the, here's the, here's the formula, right? Here's the slope formula, just punch it in and knock it out. That's so soul-sucking, right? It's just, it's draining, right? You mentioned, uh, you mentioned the concentration, the focus, the eye. And I, I remember touring schools when I was at the National Endowment for the Arts, being brought into things like a, a, an orchestra, a high school orchestra practice after school, and, and being overwhelmed by the intensity, the focus, the exactitude of these kids coming together to play this, it was a classical music piece. Mm -hmm. But the idea of this sort of soft and fuzzy, touchy feel, just express yourself. The arts are a discipline. They are, they are rigorous. And it's great for teenagers 
to to practice them. It's it's a it's it's a wonderful thing and this great thing that you're. I'm really glad that you are you're doing this conference on on the fine arts. Uh, Robert, how do people find out about the conference? Yeah, so we've got a website set up and they can go take a peek at it. It's classicaleducationsymposium.org, classicaleducationsymposium.org, if you want to put that in your show notes or what have you. And there you will see we have more than 35 speakers. They come from higher education, so they're from the academy or university and college level. They're also master teachers that we've located from across the country, colleagues and friends of ours who will be coming in to do workshops. And so for three days, we will absolutely dive deep. And for the sake of teachers, K-12 teachers, we will workshop the very forms that we are trying to bring into those classrooms with these teachers, with masterful scholar artists, really. These are conservatory level artists, right? In music, uh, in visual arts, um, and in poetry and drama. We have a fella coming over from the UK who will be leaving his engagement, uh, well, he's still there, but he's been engaged with the Globe, Shakespeare's Globe, uh, for the past two decades. And Wonderful. he'll be coming to, to speak with our, our uh, faculty and those present about the nature of Shakespeare's drama and, and demonstrating it. Robert Jackson, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Mark. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.